Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Professor Sarah Talbot from the University of Canterbury, New Zealand. Sarah works in the area of science education, but unlike many science education researchers, she takes a defiantly critical approach, focusing on difficult questions of power and politics in the classroom. In this interview, I wanted to focus on two particular approaches that Sarah is well known for. Later on in the interview, we talk about feminist approaches to science education. But first, we talked about Sarah's work with Indigenous teachers and students and her interest in bringing Indigenous knowledges into the science classroom. Um, And I probably have more questions than answers in this space because, I mean, I'm teaching Aotearoa uh, as someone who is a settler colonist from the Americas, right? And then has moved to Aotearoa. Um, I do have a history of working in Aotearoa before taking this position, but I um, I have done some work in this space, particularly with um, indigenous pre-service teachers from University of Arizona. So my colleagues there were running an indigenous teacher education program for indigenous teachers from uh, typically from the state of Arizona, but they would have been from several different um, nations and tribes. So we'd had Hopi and Dine and um, Tohono O'odham, a very diverse group of indigenous pre-service teachers. And I, and I felt for me that that model really resonated because I think, again, we cannot just, we can't culturally responsive our way out of power differentials and power inequities and, and political struggles. So there has to be a uh, a commitment to culturally responsive practice on the one hand, but that is hand in hand or embodies a critical consciousness. And part of that critical consciousness means recognizing that that a key issue is the underrepresentation of indigenous teachers in our classrooms and particularly with indigenous students. And so I would say that here in Aotearoa, that that means that we need to really work diligently to support Maori teachers who come into our programs to be able to teach with Maori students. So, so, I mean, clearly there's the issue of underrepresentation, but I'm also interested in these differences in knowledge. And, and you've written before about place-based education and place-based knowledges in, in terms of working with Indigenous knowledges. I mean, can you, can you explain how this relates to, to the science classroom and science education? Yeah, sure. So I think starting with, um, f- for all students, starting with a local place is a way to help students understand how science is relevant in their own lives and their communities for their families and issues that matter. And particularly with thinking about what it means to teach on indigenous lands, for example, in mainstream or quote unquote mainstream schools, it's really important to recognize um, the role here, for example, of Mana Fenoa, which is the people of the land, the people with authority to speak for the land. And so uh, one of the recent projects that I've been working on with the local high school, well, intermediate slash high school science educator is looking at how do we design a science unit that is responsive to those indigenous contexts. And in a classroom where we have students who are Maori, I think about half of them are actually Maori. And then we have students, a couple of students from Brazil, we have students from the Philippines, from all over, right? So how do we cultivate a responsive and diverse hybrid space in science that uh, supports students' experiences outside of school and is also respectful 
and honoring the uh, the local indigenous knowledge and tradition. So one one way that we do that is um, consultation and engagement. So I spent some time. There's a local organization here called Mataraka Mahanui, and they're essentially run by Naitaho, which is the local Ili. And so I've consulted with them. I've consulted with our Kayataki here at the university who have the local knowledge and can then help us understand what it means to teach. The unit was called Plants, Place, and People. So what does it mean to teach and be authentically building on local indigenous knowledges without, in a way that's not essentializing or tokenist, right? So I think that does require a lot of consultation and relationship building but the outcomes are really powerful. And I think there was a lot of learning and unlearning and relearning that um, the teacher I was working with and I did through that unit where we came at it in the beginning thinking about, you know, how to include the indigenous knowledge next to sort of the quote unquote Western science knowledge, which I also, I don't like that terminology either, but for lack of a better word, how, how do we do that? And then what we realized is that in a lot of cases, it wasn't uh, as simplistic as just having the two strands of knowledge side by side, that sometimes they were um, synergistic and other times not. And so it became more about when a, a lesson needed to be just about centering that indigenous knowledge versus trying to mesh them both. And when a lesson actually needed to really focus on helping support students' understandings of a complex phenomenon in science. I mean, that sounds like a huge amount of work and, and a lot of time. And I'm interested in how scalable it all is. I mean, this all sounds very local and, and very relational. I mean, are there any ways that this kind of work can be scaled up across the whole education system or does it have to be from the bottom up? I think that's a really good question. And that's one that I continue to think about and wonder about in my own work. Um, it is really labor intensive, but I think once you have it, then you have it. And so the way we're approaching the work together, um, the teacher and I, is that, okay, we have this unit that we've worked on together with consultation and that we're going to try to refine over time. And now we're going to add another one next term, for example. I think eventually with the construction of multiple units that there will be resources that can be shared but would have to be vetted as well by local iwi but also iwi across Aotearoa um, not just Naitahu and so that process does take time but I think there's nothing wrong with you know trying to make an attempt and learning and and I do think the important the important aspect of it is that whatever whatever is being done has to be vetted with someone who actually is from the local community or has that authority to speak. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Now, now, second, I'm really interested in your work on developing feminist approaches to science education, and in particular this idea of a feminist care ethics approach. I mean, can you expand on this, this idea of care and how it fits in, into science education? Yeah, I mean, that's another, another topic that you don't often hear about in science or science education at all, right? And I think, again, it's another, like, we don't talk about politics and we don't talk about care and we're doing a disservice to students when we don't think or talk about care or make care explicit because, um, you know, relational, um, like, classrooms are relational, learning is relational. And so whether we make it explicit or not, we talk about it or not, we're, we're going to be either um, um, cultivating caring relationships or harmful relationships or maybe a little bit of both in the classroom. And so... Feminist politics are about, I think, making that explicit and how do we how do we approach our work from the outset, from this perspective of, of cultivating a caring relationship. It doesn't necessarily mean it's always 
happy feelings or settled feelings or resolved feelings, but it just means that we're attending to relationships of care. And I'm, I'm really interested in how these issues play out in the classroom. And, and you've written about issues of care and relationships in, in terms of the age-old science education practice of dissecting frogs in the classroom. Can you explain what we can learn from this? My first teaching position was in the South Bronx in New York City, and we had very limited supplies for students. And we had a, a science closet that was full of, you know, materials that hadn't been used since maybe the 70s. And I found a couple of jars of frogs and the science department had said I was free to use them. They'd been sitting there for ages. And so I thought, oh, this is really cool. What an opportunity for uh, my students to um, be able to have an actual dissection experience. I didn't have enough for all of them to use. So I did it as more of a, a demo and students got to come up and help with a with the cutting. And what's interesting about that is I, I was completely opposed to dissection when I was in high school. I, I wrote a front page newspaper article against it for the high school newspaper. And here I was as a young teacher thinking about what an opportunity this was for my students. So something got, you know, um, in my mind, got twisted along the way of thinking like my first priority is just to provide an experience, an experience that they might not otherwise have, rather than stepping back and thinking about what are the ethical and political dimensions of this activity I'm about to do with students and how can we address those together um, in the classroom. So that kind of haunted me, that story. And so when this came up in my work several years later, I mean, ages later, uh, when I was working with a high school teacher and a group of students, she had kind of had the same um, experiences I had as, as being able to get cats for her students to dissect through GoFundMe. So she had done some crowd crowdsourcing and fundraise to get cats for them to dissect. And she was really feeling proud of the fact that she'd been able to provide an experience for her students that was special, you know, and unique, um, and that not, not a lot of other students would be able to have. And so I wanted to write about this because the students really were, weren't okay with it. Um, and often they were really excited about what they were doing in science. But in this particular, this particular week, we came in, we sat down, we started talking and, you know, they just said, can we be frank about what's going on in science? Can we be honest? And they just gushed about how awful it was. And it wasn't necessarily the dissection itself, but what, what were done, what was done with the remains, there was no ritual. It was just very sterile and cold and the remains were just tossed away. And, and that sat with me too. So I wanted to be able to write, write about that in a way that didn't demonize the teacher because I had done the same thing. And so I think that's part of the caring relationship is how are we approaching these really messy, messy ethico-political dilemmas together in ways that attend to caring relationships and caring for students and making sure that their story gets told in an authentic way, that I don't just hide it because it might offend the teacher, but that I think about and attend to the multiple vulnerabilities that are part of that classroom space and part of doing research in that kind of a classroom space. No, I mean, that's all really important stuff to be thinking about. And I'm also interested in how these ideas of collectivity and thinking about science in, in terms of relationships goes down in science education and, and the ways that we sometimes think about science as a lone pursuit, you know, the idea of the lone innovator, the Einstein figure. I mean, are these individualistic notions of science changing in schools? Are we thinking about science teachers uh, as a collective, as a kind of as a communal group of people? No, it's not. And I think it has to be. So that's some of my recent work. We've been looking at how to build collectives within science and science education. And the interesting opportunity that I think is available for a lot of science teachers, because while there is this emphasis on STEM education, at least in some contexts, for, for example, in North America, 
there it's not one of those highly tested subjects in in most of um, you know schooling primary intermediate through high school so they actually have uh, they're in a position of of having somewhat marginal status as they're not teaching mathematics and they're not teaching literacy and there are opportunities there in terms of how to engage in subversive resistance that I think are underutilized and so we've been looking at how teachers actually can come together because I think teachers in their own ways always are finding, um, uh, as Rochelle Gutierrez calls it, creative insubordination, acts of creative insubordination to be able to teach well. Um, but how do we bring those acts together and build collectives? And we look at the Red for Ed movement and we look at the teacher strikes that are going on around the world. That's that's where the power is, right? So how do we bring teachers together and, and connect them so how do we take this work and build a movement? So if I'm working with one or two teachers, how do I bring in a couple other teachers and and what are the networks that we can cultivate and support to build movements around our, our justice-oriented work? Yeah, yeah. I love the idea of thinking about STEM as justice-orientated. But I'm just really interested in how this all goes down in the broader science education community. I mean, we're living in strange times of a kind of ongoing culture wars. Lots of areas of education are kind of surprisingly apolitical or even conservative. And I guess some science educators and parents and politicians, even students, are going to push back against some of the things that we've just been talking about. I mean, so how do we work beyond this in this era of woke or, or anti-woke? Or anti-woke. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, I think, um, again, those are really open-ended questions that vary from one context to the next. Because if you're a teacher and you're in a position where, uh, like I've worked with a teacher before, um, who was in a position where she's co-parenting and has to be really cautious about if she couldn't leave the state because her co-parent lives in the same state and there you know, were issues around her. She couldn't just pick up and, and leave her current position. So she had to be a little bit more subversive because of the fact that she needed to stay where she was. But, you know, some of us who have what is our arena of power? Right. And how can how we make sure that we're actually taking advantage of the power that we do have and then collectively building on that individual power and and using it to our collective advantage so what 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 can i do on behalf of that teacher for example in my position um, that can help enable her to do the work better so here we talk about um, issues around climate change education and action-oriented competence are part of the curriculum so you go back to the curriculum it's in the curriculum it's, it's part of the le- what you're legally being asked to teach. We're talking about education for sustainability as building action-oriented competence in the New Zealand curriculum. Well, therefore, everything that you do connected to that can be justified with parents or the, or the local school board because it's part of the curriculum and you are required to teach it. So there are ways that I think we can do this and, and still be protected And that part of that is that movement building, you know, who has the arena or who's within a particular type of arena of power to be able to do particular types of work, like go to the Ministry of Education or who's in an arena of power where they can maybe just that arena of power is their classroom, but they can share what they're doing with someone else. So connecting teachers um, with each other. But, yeah, also thinking about systemic change. There has to be that level of systemic change, too, that then enables a greater number of people to say, hey, this is part of what I'm being asked to teach. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's it's finding power in the collective is what you're saying. It is. So finally, let's, let's finish on an upbeat note. Um, and ideally, what would you hope science education to be like in 20 years' time? Once we've had 20 years of focusing on, on these issues, what do you hope science educators will be looking at, talking about, achieving? A good friend of mine once said, like, I hope that science education becomes a place where someone says, 
oh, you're a science or you're, you're a scientist, you're a science educator. Gosh, you're so radical. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> um, but I think in 20 years time, I'm hoping that we're, we're not still holding on to this antiquated concept of science being a set of facts and, and theories that we communicate or try to instill in students and rather think about how science is related to other disciplines, moving towards more transdisciplinary work like we see in you know, undergraduate or, or postgraduate levels of study. I mean, we all need to be doing that kind of work and we need to recognize that children are just as capable of, of engaging with those kinds of issues and problems and how we can do that is to bring them into part of this, the intergenerational work that's going on in these problem spaces around climate change, around income inequality, around food insecurity, um, so that they don't feel disempowered or they don't um, experience eco-anxiety, but they understand that there are these big problems and that science is a, is a part of, a powerful part of solving some of the problems or understanding them so that we can engage with them more competently. Um, yeah, and that if we give them opportunities to be a part of that, in my experience, they rise to the occasion. Well, well, well you've sold it to me. If that's what STEM is going to be like, then I'm definitely in for the ride. <laughs> I hope so. It should be right. I mean, thanks ever so much, Sarah, for taking the time to talk me through all this. And I look forward to reading much, much more in the future. Thanks so much, Neil. Thanks for the invitation.